Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 14th, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Our November issue is up and ready for your perusal at commentary.org. This is a great issue. If you are not a subscriber, if you're listening to my voice, you should be a subscriber. It helps us pay for the podcast. If you're not a subscriber, today is the day to subscribe. Our new issue is up and it is chock full of wonders. Uh, Abe, let's tell people about the issue a little bit. We've got a fantastic piece by Barton Swain on the war on work. This is right. you know, the, the ongoing effort about quiet quitting and the, the, the great resignation. And, and um, it's, that's terrific and comprehensive. And we've got uh, Ray Takei on the Iranian uprisings, which he compares to um, uh, 78 and 79. And uh, he sees similarities in, in, in how the Shah cracked down and to, to how uh, uh, the, the, to Te- Tehran is handling the protests now, and he asks the question and in time answers it, uh, whether this is, a, in fact, a second revolution. What right. else do we, we got? Uh, we, got a, we got a fantastic piece by, by James Meggs, our tech commentary oh, columnist right. on junk science in courtrooms and how uh, the American craze for forensic science is reflected in the success of all those CBS crime procedural shows like CSI and others have um, have created a terrible condition in courtrooms where uh, juries uh, fall for um, completely unverified uh, methods of supposed scientific analysis and have wrongly been con- wrongly convicting people and stuff like that based on based on a lot of that. It's a it's a it's a great piece as is. John Jonathan Tobin's piece on Ken Burns's very problematic documentary about the U.S. and the Holocaust. Oh, we um, should mention uh, uh, Solly's column. Right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Mayor Soloveitchik has a beautiful column on the on a wedding, uh, a Chabad wedding in Abu Dhabi and what this means, the revolution in consciousness of reflected by the fact that a Lubavitch Hasidic wedding took place uh, in an Arab state uh, just last month. And a uh, really remarkable piece by uh, Joshua Carlip on the demise of Jewish studies in America, how Jewish studies professors now basically uh, <clears throat> know very little about uh, Jewish history. They don't know Hebrew or Yiddish, and they are mostly, of course, uh, going all woke. Um one more. So, I, I I want yeah. to say Rob Long's column is one of my favorites of his. Right. Yeah. About Rob. Six- Rob is Rob is trying to explain the amazing fact that Greg Gutfeld's 11 p.m. show on uh, the Fox News Channel is now the most popular late night show, outdrawing Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, Trevor Noah. Everybody. The, the show has more viewers every night than those shows and how this happened. So it is a great issue. That is our November issue. Time to sign up, time to advertise, time to become a paying member of the commentary family. I know that in your family, you don't have to pay except in blood and sorrow and tears and neurosis and anxiety. 
Here, all you got to do is throw some money down and you are a reader in good standing, a member of our community in good standing, and uh, you will really enjoy yourself. Uh, let me introduce now the man who is speaking, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and AEI fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, the January 6th committee had a valedictory hearing of some sort. I mean, maybe they'll have more. They probably won't. All In all likelihood, the Republicans are going to win the House in November, and that will, that will, by January, put some kind of an end to the January 6th committee. I mean, you know, they'll put Marjorie Taylor Greene, they'll make Marjorie Taylor Greene the chairman of it or something like that. All the Democrats will resign. Who knows? I don't even know structurally whether it survives into the next Congress without a, a vote of the whole. In any case, they had the hearing. And of course, it ended with the um, now legendary decision to subpoena Donald Trump and Donald Trump responding by saying he'd love to appear before the committee as long as he can testify live, which, of course, is a bluff and a ridiculous thing to say. He would never testify in such a hearing uh, without a grant of immunity because, you know, he lot one lie and he's perjured himself before Congress and talk about handing Merrick Garland a really easy get uh, for a perjury conviction. But you don't think he he doesn't have, you know, fantasies of himself as MacArthur rallying the country against this cruel regime that has done such terrible things to him? Well, yeah, I mean, I imagine that uh, an old uh, Woody Allen movie, The Front, which is uh, ideologically disgusting in many ways, but is about Woody Allen uh, being the front man for people who have been blacklisted uh, uh, writing uh, in Hollywood uh, because of their communist ties and, and during the McCarthy era. And it ends with Woody Allen testifying before Congress and telling the committee, the House on American Activities Committee, that they can all go F themselves and, uh, you know, it's like a heroic moment where everybody applauds and then he is taken off in handcuffs uh, at the end of the movie, but in a moment of triumph. So you could sort of see that that is where Trump's brain might be going to that movie he saw when he was, uh, you know, 25 years old or whatever, or not. Or um, he just wants to say he'd love to testify the way he says things, the way he used to say things like we're about to, we're going to issue our our proposal tomorrow we're gonna you know it's a, about a week in about a week we will have our proposal done um so forget trump and the subpoena and the end there and the roll call and all of that uh what did you guys think of the hearing uh all in all okay the, the one of the sort of main conceptual takeaways here was that trump did know that he lost right because uh, uh he would he there's there's people saying that he said uh can you believe i lost to this guy or let's leave something for the next guy again i mean i i, I hate to bring it down to this because it's 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 crazy but um or or an or another fact here the fact that he was um preparing to say that the election was was fixed if if he were to lose in any event right um let's just deal with that that doesn't mean that he didn't think he lost that he didn't think he won as it happens 
He was planning to say he won no matter what. He may have eventually come around to thinking that he did, in fact, win this time. Um, and also saying that, um, uh, uh, can you believe I lost to this guy? Or can you believe this guy's the next president or whatever the, the thing was? Doesn't necessarily mean he thinks he legitimately lost. It, 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 it could mean that, he, that he, yes, he's aware that the outcome, however supposedly corrupt the outcome is, states that he lost all i'm getting at here is that not there's been nine proceedings here i don't think you can ultimately prove what's in his mind on that point you can't prove what's in anybody's mind you can prove and they have proven with a preponderance of evidence at the most at the very least that he had neither a rational basis for that kind of belief and most likely didn't actually hold that belief and was apparently acting like he didn't hold that belief if he's telling the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who alleged, could have been Mike Pompeo, but who alleged that this particular issue of relating to national security should be left for the next guy, quote. Um, I mean, the evidence suggests that he doesn't believe his own BS. And the fact that people want to maintain that he did believe his own BS is only because they want to erase the prospect of criminal intent on his part or malicious intent on his part. And the preponderance of evidence suggests he does have malicious intent. I mean, we can only go be so charitable to a point at which it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm with Abe in this sense, which is, um, first of all, I don't think it matters. I mean, it matters if what you're trying to prove is that he was perpetrating a knowing fraud by saying that he had lost the election when he had won, by triggering these baseless lawsuits and by stirring up the pot with the public and that it was a knowing fraud. But even that is craziness. I mean, if you think about it, even saying he knew that he lost, but he did it anyway is craziness that this is, this was the hail Mary play to end all hail Mary plays that you could somehow disrupt the process by which a president has been, you know, has been formally acknowledged to be president um, for the first time in American history without an actual um, ambiguous result, right? There was an ambiguous result in 1876 that threw everything into chaos. It's really not clear who, you know, should have been the president after 1876. And, you know, then the laws were rewritten to make sure that 18 never, 1876 never happened again. If he did thought that he had lost, but thought that he could barrel his way through to remaining president, then he's a crazy person. And it doesn't matter whether or not he had knowledge that they, this is the problem with the committee, which I think otherwise in many ways did a good job. And I know people are going to be really angry at me for saying this. They wanted to prove a case, which is that, that he perpetrated a fraud. He knew that he did not win. And therefore January 6th was not only was it, you know, a horrible event and something that he might've triggered and all of that, uh, but that it was, it was done with yes, malicious and kind of cynical intent. I don't really know why that's important. I well, mean, genuinely speaking, go ahead. Well, so th this is actually my uh, thinking about, as Abe said, what nine hours, all the different televised things, the challenge of the, commission was always that they were kind of constantly moving 
what their goal own goal was, right? It's it, the goalpost. Not it, so Jamie Raskin would say, well, actually, we just want to present the evidence to the public so they can make an important decision. Other other Democratic leaders would say things like, no, we want to show this criminal intent so that the Justice Department brings an indictment. Um, you know, when when it's pointed out that it, this hasn't budged Trump's approval ratings or poll numbers in any way, shape, or form, then then there's the argument that, well, but you know, hopefully this will prevent people him from wanting running to run for re-election or his supporters from really seeing the real Trump. None of that is, that's a lot of different cross purposes. If they wanted to present evidence to the public to say, look, we're looking back on this day, we're going to put all the puzzle pieces together for you and create this narrative that'll help you understand what people in power were doing, thinking and saying um, for the record. Like this is just, we're doing this for the record. It's a, it's a big commission. That would be one thing. And I think they succeeded uh, in doing that, they they actually brought in lots of different pieces of evidence. They told a story about what happened on January 6th that I think was illuminating for a lot of people. They brought law enforcement in to describe, you know, their experience. They've had, you know, yesterday's uh, hearing showed, you know, leaders like Pelosi and others being hustled off and trying to keep the vote going. It, this was all useful information for the American people to have if they were paying attention. But the criminal case is something different. And I think they wanted they want to kind of do both things at once and they're they're not doing either perfectly well and that's where i was frustrated throughout this process listening to the but commission. they have but they have a criminal case that's that's why getting to his state of mind about whether he lost or not strikes me as a sideshow and a weird thing to focus on and i'll, I'll go into one is that did he or did he not incite a riot? Inciting a riot is a is a criminal right. act, whether you're the president of the United States or a street sweeper. You cannot incite a riot. That is. But Congress can't indict him for that. No, no, no. no. And, and, <laughs> yeah, this is. It's not like this is just a weird thing that people brought up. John Turley has said that his state of mind precludes the idea that he had any criminal intentionality and therefore not be prosecuted for this. It's not like these are random people just like musing on the internet. These are real arguments that are being made, and they're utterly baseless and bunk. And I find this really bizarre because I only exaggerate slightly when I say that the only people who were remotely who were who haven't testified that they told the president that he didn't lose the election and that he internalized that are people who are in criminally accused criminally convicted or under indictment the only credible yeah. people around him are testifying that they told him as much moreover we learned yesterday in this committee there's a paper trail a mile long about the threats of violence on that day. Right. Credible threats of violence that everybody knew was going to happen right. and they went through with it anyway. Right. Well, and the, Suggesting well, so, what? And so the, no, the, but, the, it, but but do people want account okay. But this is the question, right? Are, are, was the commission's goal accountability or was it culpability? Because those are two different things, right? Or is well it both? Put. Yeah. Here's the thing, Noah, as I see it, like you are getting to the hardest possible thing that you can possibly do to talk about what it was he knew or believed beforehand, because you want to prove that he knew that he lost, but pushed all this stuff anyway, that there's a reason that they did that. It was a mistake. That's all I'm saying. They've done it because it's the hardest thing to prove in a court of law. And it's not really a court of law. Exactly. But okay. exactly. We're, we, we, so talk, talk about standards that are moving goalposts. This this uh, spectacle is at one point a, a display of theater, two, a record for posterity, three, criminal proceedings. And it can be any and all of these things, and all of them simultaneously sometimes. We don't but have the same standards. Right. But I'm saying I think they made a mistake because all they needed to focus on was what is the story from, let's say, October 15th to January 6th, right? 
what is the story? What are the facts of the case? Here's what happened. There was already he, there memos were being issued about how to not accept the results of the election. Steve Bannon is saying clearly with White House input, and by the way, stuff that we were talking about contemporaneously, that he wasn't going to accept the results of the election. I bet if we went back and listened to our podcast in the two weeks before the election, we mused on how Trump wouldn't accept the results of the election. He said in 2016 that he was not going to, he effectively said he was not going to uh, accept the results of the election had he lost in 2016, remember? People kept asking the question. He said, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I'm going to act when this all happens. Then he actually became president and then pretended that he had lost the election but won it anyway. You remember that? I they they stole three million votes from me in California. Like he actually played the loser winner. This is the weird gambit here. So if they had just established the narrative, said, here are all the data points. Everybody in the White House knew he lost. He was having meetings with people who, who wanted to come up with legal arguments and stratagems to overturn the results of the elections in various states. And then his outside advisors, Stone and Bannon in particular, are basically openly calling for violence. Um and uh, in a way that he would have every reason to know they were doing so, he not only didn't interfere, he encouraged it. People came to the case. He said, come, it's going to be wild. He said, let's march down to the Capitol. Then he goes back to the White House. The violence breaks out, and he is sitting watching TV and saying nothing. No, then no, you not say, this we is still... the fact. This is, These are the facts as we have uncovered them. You well, are the American. You're people. skipping over something that's rather right. important because we still don't exactly know precisely what was going on when he was watching television. We have a lot of testimony to that effect, but we now know rather definitively that there was an attempt, significant attempt, hours long effort to make an off the record visit to the Capitol when it was engulfed in violence. The president wanted to be there. Why? Right. Why did he want to be there? Not to shut it down. Because he wouldn't shut saying, it down. That's they another had to beg day. him. Okay. They had to, they, he was kicking okay. and screaming. He, he right. cut 15 different uh, versions of that spot where he right. said, you know, everybody, you're beautiful. We love you. Go home. He didn't want to say it. He wanted the conflagration to be bigger. Listen, listen. All I'm saying is that I think Christine's accountability versus culpability thing is very important. If the House January 6th committee had decided that what it was going to do was set out a damning, you know, they interview a thousand people and they set out extraordinarily damning evidence that you have to be an ostrich to go under, you know, the, and say, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. La, 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 la. You're all Democrats. Um, and then said, this is our report. We are now issuing. Here's what we found. Here's the report that we're going to issue. Merrick Garland, the ball is in your court. I think that it might have been a little better. Like, and and here's what I wanted to, to I say this in a column in the New York Post today. They did something very weird, which is that they they went for five minutes. Adam Kinzinger was the guy who did this part of the hearing to talk about how um the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Pentagon get from the White House this weird pseudo-order uh around a week after the election for a total pullout of American forces from Somalia and Afghanistan by January 15th. Now, apparently, I did not know this or I'd forgotten it. This was reported on in Bob Woodward's book, Peril, 
but I missed that and not much was made of it. I know almost John everything Swan else. had a uh, podcast series on this. Who did Jonathan Swan? Okay. Well, so I missed it too. So, but okay. So I missed it. So it was fascinating. Trump is sitting in the Oval Office. He's got this, you know, bag man guy who was marched out of the White House by by uh, by Kelly when Kelly was chief of staff, John McEntee, for being a security risk, who comes back as head of White House personnel. And he and some other MAGA psychotic somehow end up going into Trump's office with an order to pull out all these forces from Afghanistan and Somalia. And Trump signs it, and they send it over to the Pentagon. It's not an official order. It's not a, you know, and somebody has to say to him, Mr. President, if this is something you want to do, you're going to have to do it in the right way, in the right, you know, and then we're going to have to have meetings to discuss how we're going to do this. And it is like, so this means if Trump, you know, had had his way, he would have been Biden. Worst thing that Biden did in his presidency was the pullout from Afghanistan. Trump was going to do exactly the same goddamn thing in the same goddamn half-assed manner. That's really valuable information. I'm sorry. Like that is and 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 highlighting that is really great, but they didn't highlight it for that reason. They highlighted it because they thought that it proved that he knew he was going to, he had lost and was going to be leaving office on the 20th of January and therefore wanted to get this done on his watch before the new guy was sworn in. But see, to that me, is not, that is burying the lead. The lead is that he wanted to do it and that he had this ragtag bunch of lunatic, you know, security risks trying to design the most important act in American foreign policy for him while he sat late up at night in his office with his Diet Coke in his robe being a crazy person. Abe, I'm sorry. I agree entirely. I just want to add the the reason that that they focused on it also is, to me, a very confusing reason. In that, if the idea was that he knew uh, that that his time was limited, it it doesn't necessarily mean that he knows he legitimately lost. It means he had some sense that his effort to stay indefinitely was going to fail. That's not it the same thing. It just wait strikes me. It's like wait, you have wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> I, I, I don't okay. follow the train of logic there, Abe. Okay. Bill, like elaborate here. He doesn't think he's going to be in office. But that doesn't but mean he, he doesn't thinks it's legitimate. They've stolen the election right, from him. Right. They might have, yeah. In other words, he's he won, but they've stolen, which is what wait, he thinks. This is now. mental gymnastics. It just no, 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 Noah, you're, Noah, you're not being fair. It's very I'm simple. being very fair. I'm assuming a modicum of thinks, rationality no, on listen, the part. He thinks he actually won. He thinks they're stealing the election from him and they will probably succeed. So he will make this important policy choice and have it act so he gets credit for the pullout from Afghanistan and does this thing that he wants to do because by definition, if he loses and leaves office, the election was stolen, which is what he thinks. But here's what I want to talk about in relation to the January 6th committee and not him, which is a guy has a car and there's a red light and he runs the red light and he kills three people with his car. 
and you have a legal proceeding, not that this is a legal proceeding, and the focus of the prosecution is on him running the red light and not on him killing the three people with his car by running the red light. By focusing on this detail about Trump's state of mind and his behavior in the Oval Office after the election in a precipitous and insane withdrawal from Afghanistan, the results of which we have now seen to our great and lasting sorrow and partially probably causing this war in Ukraine that is the most important event since 9-11 on the world stage. Trump could have done that too. Trump, if if he had had a pla- if he had had pliable force in the Pentagon, and if this hadn't been done in the way that he did it with this thirty year old, uh, you know, guy John McEntee, maybe actually they would have executed this plan. And on the on the on the precipice of the new president being sworn in, there would have been this scene at Bagram Air Base that was exactly the same scene at Bagram Air Base that we saw in August of 2021. Like, it's like, it's like they snuck it in and they sort of framed it in the wrong way. Now, it isn't, doesn't really go to the January 6th issue, but it was pretty stunning nonetheless, um, uh, particularly if you want to indict Trump in the minds of people to say, hey, you know what? You, th- you think Biden was bad on Afghanistan? Trump was just as bad or would have been even worse maybe you know, if he had been allowed or if he had been somehow, if his, you know, initial uh, purpose, and we know he did this throughout his presidency was he would say, you know, we're pulling out of Syria, right? And then, and then uh, I'm blocking, what was the name of the guy who resigned? Mattis, Jim Mattis, the defense secretary resigns, and then we don't even pull out of Syria. So, but that's why I think like some of this is refracted in the wrong way. But having said that, that was this was a great hearing, and I'm sorry. I know Republicans hate this because what they want to say is, did they lay a glove on him or did they not lay a glove on him? Does it matter or does it not matter? That footage taken apparently by Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, who is a documentary filmmaker, and by the way, somebody who made a very nice documentary about George W. Bush. I know that's not going to help you MAGA lunatics out there, but like not a, but a, an interesting person. Um, uh, Alexander Pelosi. Anyway, so she was with her mother and she was filming, I guess, on an iPhone or something and captured this scene uh, in the basement of the of the Capitol while the riot was going on of her and Schumer and, you know, talking to McConnell and calling Pence and all of that and saying, you know, what are you doing about this? And then I can't remember who the person was on the phone with her where she said, how long is it going to take for you to clear the plaza and the guy in the other phone is saying i can't tell you that i i don't know like i i don't know i can't tell you that was the defense secretary was it the oh okay and then she said okay well if you can't clear the plaza if somebody were doing this in the pentagon parking lot how long would it take you to clear that which i thought was actually a pretty good question um anyway uh what that showed was importantly the contemporaneous fact that there were the leaders of the co-equal branch of the U.S. government were in this basement room together trying to call off the hounds that had invaded and taken over the Capitol building in whose basement they were hiding. Now, you have to be Alex Jones to think that that was an acting job. The only thing that made me 
feel a little less queasy about it was how calm Pelosi was and um, almost as though she sort of she sort of had this sense in the, you know, the one, one way of looking at it, somebody said this morning, it's funny, she had five kids in six years. So no wonder she was calm. She had to learn how to be calm, but which I accept as a, a possible answer. But uh, the other was that um, she knew that Trump had blown it. Like she knew that something big was happening here that would redound to Democrats benefit. Like she wanted the process to go on and all that, but she was calm because it's like, we finally got it. Remember she spent the entire time of her speakership with him, like trolling him. She tore up his state of the union speech. She did all kinds of stuff. And uh, there we are. Uh, so she's got in nine 11 conspiracy theory talk, there's two versions of the Bush administration's culpability. Either it's LIHOP or MIHOP. MIHOP made it happen on purpose. LIHOP let it happen on purpose. There's no other option. The Bush administration did it. It's just whether they were passive or active. So is Trump MIHOP or LIHOP? <laughs> really, that's what we're left with. And I'm well, and the say, commission wanted to say he's MIHOP. There's, yeah. you know, and I think right. a lot of people, a lot of Americans, if you look at the polling numbers, would suggest although it's still a disaster and a horrible thing that happened, that it was LIHOP, like he let it happen and kind of, you know, cheered from the sidelines, but didn't instigate. Um, I'm not sure the commission proved either one. That's what's frustrating about it or could prove it. But that, that was the mistake. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I say, I say it's high hop. He helped it happen on purpose. <laughs> no, that's, I like that. That's a good right, Okay, well, that, so he was an accessory. <laughs> right, okay, and I think an accessory. That's, a very, that's a very good way to put it. And maybe the problem with the commission is that it, is that um, it took on this job, you know, again, everything happens because it happens in the moment that it's happening. So uh, they could not establish or form a frame, um, a proper commission because uh, the Republicans in the House, including that limp noodle of, a, of an anti-leader, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, having uh, screamed about how uh, Trump, you know, had done this and it was terrible, uh, saw the polling numbers and saw his saw his potential future speakership at risk if he had taken a hard line on this commission and and went the other way and decided to become a troll of it, wanting to appoint people who would do nothing but kind of trash the commission from the inside. Pelosi said we wouldn't do it. Trump was telling people not to cooperate, so you couldn't get an actual proper commission up so they get this commission which is you know 12 people two of them being anti-trump republicans who had voted for impeachment and no other republican and uh and so the logic of the commission ended up following much more in the lines ideologically or theoretically of what adam schiff would want rather than a kind of if you had a consensus bipartisan commission that said you know what we are not going anywhere near the culpability issue we want accountability let us we'll call every we'll do with this we'll do that and the in the end what we'll try to get is create a narrative through line of what happened behind the scenes before and on the day of january 6th for the historical record and we will leave the legal stuff to the people who actually have a legal role here, which is not us. Our purpose is not to create the material 
for an indictment. In fact, if we do, do our jobs right, often we might be getting people to testify under grant of immunity and we will harm the prospect of their uh, being prosecuted uh, because the testimony they give us as with Iran as with Iran Contra will make it impossible for them to be prosecuted. That's not the purpose of our mission. Our mission here is to establish what happened so that everybody can see gathering storms in the future and stop them before they gather. But they they still have a report to issue too, and you know if they really want to be thorough, they'll release transcripts. They'll do they'll they'll be oh, utterly transparent. Right. So last night I heard Adam Schiff on one of these shows saying this is going to be a multimedia report. Not only will they issue a report, there'll be a website. They will have they will have video testimony. They will have all the all the stuff, all the exhibits that they put up on the air and other stuff for people, and it will you know live on the web forever. So that they were they are gonna they are gonna do that um let's talk a little more about this but before we do i think it's very important that i talk to you about our advertiser our good friends at bowling branch no you sleep on bowling branch sheets you got pewter you got pewter sheets they got nine colors and the colors are beautiful and uh you're not really getting them for the colors though they have all the colors you're getting them for the feel you're getting them for the fact that this is a firm bowl and branch obsessed with thread quality and not thread count. Okay. Best 100% organic cotton threads on earth for a superior softness and better night's sleep. Their sheets are just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft. They get softer with every wash. Uh, you know, they're, they're made with threads so luxurious. They're beloved by three U.S. presidents. You'll immediately feel the difference. 100% free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. <clears throat> They're labeled with top and bottom, so it makes it so easy to put a fitted sheet on, which, of course, I had to do last night after the dog had a little accident on my bed, and I don't have those Mullen brand sheets, and it took us five minutes to figure out how to put on the fitted sheet. So this is a, a great feature, uh, and they fit the deepest of mattresses. And they give you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. Um, so uh, we've been saying that the best thing for Democrats is, or one of the best things for Democrats is for Trump to be front and center in politics. We saw that the summer, the Mar-a-Lago raid and everything that happened after that coincided with this Democratic surge in August. Um, uh, and did they succeed in that here in bringing Trump front and center again? The subpoena clearly intended to troll Trump. Like they want Trump to respond. They want this conversation to take place about whether or not he will he will, you know, he will obey the subpoena, uh, subpoena, Will whether he will evade it, can they prosecute him, blah, blah, blah. Christine, what do you think? Um, I'm not sure that they've kept Trump front and center in terms of midterm elections. I mean, it's been January 6th and abortion. That's what Democrats have been running on. Um both of them as an existential threat. And then with with a big assist from the Biden administration in, in labeling all Republicans 
uh, and this is actually something that I think uh, was is also a miscalculation, labeling all Republicans as, um, you know, proto-fascists, uh, ultra-magas, uh, really demonizing a, a large group of voters, some of whom might actually, because they dislike Trump and don't want to see a resurgence of, of Trump Trumpism, might vote for a Democrat in a local election. So I think that demonization process wasn't good. Um, whether or not this actually helps them in midterms, I just, I don't think so. Um, I think people are not going to be voting on January 6th in this election. I think it'll matter more and they will likely time their multimedia report uh, with an eye towards 2024. I mean, I, I agree because um, first off, as, as I think you said, at the, at the start of the show, people, American opinion on this hasn't really budged. Um, if you were in the Trump camp from the start, you're, you're still there. And uh, if you, if you weren't, you're still not. Um, and look, I also think there is a certain degree of fatigue with this, with, with the whole January 6th issue, not to say it's not important. That's not, that's not a reason not to pursue it. It's not, but the, the, the sort of, You've got to sit down and watch the, the, the first hearing that that sense. That was not what what, you know, prevailed yesterday. So that fatigue um, there, there have been nine of these. Right. So that fatigue works both ways because you don't really get the sense from <clears throat> pro Trump Republicans or even Trump adjacent Republicans that this is, you know, such an egregious offense on par with the Mar-a-Lago raid. The Mar-a-Lago raid just dominated the headlines for three weeks like i went on vacation and came back and it was still the lead story and this one just doesn't seem to have that feel so maybe everybody is i i like the fatigue theory maybe everybody's just over it okay both both um, ways i mean nobody's over it in truth well in the sense that they can't summon the passion that we saw in august after the mar-a-lago raid I don't know. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that that's the case, but I do know that, you know, uh, Republicans and MAGA types are as obsessed and consumed with this issue, you know, uh, 21 months after the fact as any Democrat is like they still think based on my email that Trump had the election stolen. And did I didn't I see the latest story about the firm? in michigan that had its server that got a you know, guy got arrested for having you know putting uh, voter information on a server in china so you know china was I, stealing the election or whatever you know like they can't quit it but i think but but for the most part i think and this is purely impressionistic i think they've gone from you know their hair being on fire over this this supposed horrific um crime against against their man um, they've sort of downshifted into kind of making fun of the January 6th committee. It's like, oh, oh, they just here we go again. These bloviating, self-important. Look at them saving democracy. You know, I think it's be it's become something different in the constellation of of their issues. Look, I think what's what is I think inarguable now is that Trump faces a much greater danger to his uh, political and legal future from the document story than he does from the January 6th story. Because in the end, Noah may be satisfied 
And I, I mean, you know, by the idea that he had every reason to know that he had lost the election, he did lose the election, and he went ahead anyway, and that this then creates a fact pattern that could have him, you know, uh, leading a conspiracy to overturn the results of a legitimate election. Um, but again, almost fiendishly impossible, fiendishly difficult, if not impossible to prove <clears throat> in a court of law to have Merrick Garland bring an indictment against. But if there was one classified document in that box that was moved from the basement to his apartment, he's toast. I mean, and Garland would have absolutely no reason not to indict him except on grounds of public safety because there will be riots and all of this. But if in announcing such an indictment, he says, look, uh, the former uh, secretary of defense who was the man who helped, you know, turn around our fortunes in Iraq and is legitimately one of the greatest military heroes of the 21st century, he was convicted of this crime. David Petraeus was convicted of the same crime that we are indicting. And as Noah said yesterday, dozens of people in the handling of classified information have been indicted and convicted uh, of precisely that. And, you know, he's in much more danger. But this, uh, this is why the way that this is that we're talking through this makes me think that this is a huge missed opportunity for the Biden administration and for Democrats in general, because if you'd had a commission that did just that, just sort of just the facts, ma'am, we're going to lay out what happened and present it to the public as a public service, then you have the the legal case against him, which can only be, be brought by Merrick Garland and has to do with things that I think most Americans feel should be punished, which is, you know, dealing in this way with with classified documents. Uh, the Democrats had an opportunity to say, look, you know, here, here are the facts about this guy and about the political movement he spawned. Um, and now he's facing a criminal indictment. Uh, but we know that most Republicans are are not our law abiding citizens who don't agree with this kind of nonsense and give them an escape away from Trump for the ones who really uh, want it. I mean, there's going to be diehard fans, obviously. I agree. The issue is they've all... been totally demonized. The, 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 the Democrats have completely tarred every Republican with the Trump brush now. And it's just not the case that every Republican. Republican wants a future for the party that's Trumpism. Okay, but that was foreseen by Republicans and welcomed by Republicans. We would all be better served yeah. if we had a blue ribbon commission that was not a congressional commission led by current lawmakers. But that's what Republicans denied, and they denied it so that they could have a partisan affair. They wanted that. That was part of the calculation. That's I think that's 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 absolutely right. Now their calculations can be can be good or bad. Right. Voters don't necessarily want. Them, yeah. But. Um and of course, you know, if you have the boomerang effect, which is like Republicans gathering, circling the wagons, you know, if there's some candidate who runs against Trump in 2024 and gingerly brings up January 6th or whatever, and then you say, ah, you're serving the Democrats' interests and all that, that helps Trump get the nomination. Remember, Democrats want Trump to get the nomination. Biden wants Trump to be the nominee in 2024. That's what he wants. And Republican, you know, MAGA people are playing into Biden's hands, assuming Biden is the candidate. Now, maybe you think, well, he can't possibly win again. And he didn't win the first time, so he's not going to win again, although I don't know why he can't steal the election again if he stole it before, according to you. But nonetheless, the troll here is trolling Trump to remain a central political figure 
or the central political figure of the Republican Party. That is what the Democrats want. They say what they want is for him to go away. And I do believe that if he could be indicted or convicted or something so that he couldn't run again, that would make them happy. I'm not saying that. But absent that, they want him as the face of the Republican Party. Well, they want 2024, crazy versus potentially demented. I mean, this is not good for the country. That's the yeah. problem is that I'm not sure voters in either party really want that for the okay, country. Let's, let's speak about uh, demented or crazy. Um Matt Connetti has a great column today at the Free Beacon, our Washington commentary columnist, who has a piece in the November issue called Old Man Biden, um, which really is about what it's like to have this old man as president. But uh, this one is called The Stagflation President, and he uh, digs up uh, a quote I did not see or a statement uh, issued after the release of the latest uh, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics data. Um uh, Americans are squeezed by the cost of living. That's been true for years, and they didn't need today's report to tell them that, says the White House or Biden. Uh, the cost of living in 2019, before the pandemic, was not squeezing Americans. There was no inflation, and uh, and in fact, <clears throat> incomes were rising. <clears throat> so, A, that's a lie. But then he said... Rising costs are, quote, a key reason I ran for president. And my policies that Democrats delivered directly tackles price pressures we saw in today's report. Uh, when did he run on uh, rising costs? He ran on rising costs? Bullshit he ran on rising costs. He did not run on rising costs because there were no rising costs. Costs started to rise in basically in March of 2021. He's a tail weaver. He likes to tell stories, John. You're being way too hard on him. <laughs> Thank you. And then and then he said this thing that Noah finds sad and I find <laughs> astonishing, which is he said, uh, if you know Republicans are in charge, inflation is going to get worse. You know, I only find it's heartbreaking in my inflation view. Inflation only... can't really get much worse. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course it could get right. worse. Let's I mean, we could we could be wood. Nazi, we could Bites be in Weimar Germany, but yeah, it's just sad insofar as it's the last possible argument you have when you've you screwed up so badly that you say only I can unscrew this up. It's not convincing, but it's just the last possible argument you have left. So I cock my head and I say, "Oh, poor guy." I mean, <clears throat> you can say anything you can say you know you can say that the you know the oceans are going to turn to lemonade you preside over and you preside over an eightfold increase in inflation for the time that you were elected president and you're saying they'll be worse when you spent four trillion dollars which is the reason that inflation is where it is. It's part of the ongoing flail. We also got some news yesterday, which I completely believe out of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where they said, look, Joe Biden approached us, said, can you put off this OPEC you know, supply crunch until after the election? It's what they said. They said they wanted to game the election out. Now, that's not terrible because the American president should do everything they possibly can to reduce energy prices. I don't care if it's a political benefit to you. That's just good governance. But the Democratic Party's response to this was to say, well, OK, you're a Russian asset and completely try to sever our relationship with Riyadh. 
which is recklessly irresponsible, grotesque even, manipulation of the public, a terrible mishandling of our strategy, both with regard to the kingdom and maintaining this incredible longevity that Americans have had insofar as they continue to support the Ukrainian cause, which is a fragile thing and should be much better stewarded by the party in power. Um, just sort of illustrates the ongoing flail, but a really cynical one. I, 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 I'm looking for this really uh, fantastic bit of rhetoric from the Wall Street Journal's uh, editorial uh, this morning. Oh, yes, here it is. Okay, ready? The ingenious plan seems to be to tell the Saudis that unless they do what Mr. Biden wants, the U.S. will shoot itself in the head. So lower oil prices or we won't lift our drilling bans and our... Or and the our... idiot gets it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, blazing we are saddles. the idiot here. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it, yeah, it's blazing saddles. Oh, won't someone help that poor man? Yeah, the Saudis are not the residents of Rock Ridge. Uh, it is astonishing. We are so angry at you that we are not going to do anything that could actually punish you. We're just going to continue to punish ourselves in the form of restricting oil exploration that could break the back of OPEC uh, for good. Really great. Um Got to do real quick before we get out of here. The the only Democrat on the ballot this year who wants to be seen with Joe Biden. She'll tell you some interesting tales. So according apparently, according to reporting late October, uh, Joe Biden's going to be doing a campaign trail stop, a rare one, because he's not very frequently invited to appear alongside candidates who are vulnerable and fighting for their political lives. But Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman, lieutenant governor, is going to welcome Joe Biden to a, uh, a fundraising event, campaign stop, presumably. Um, and it's an interesting strategy because we were, John and I were looking up poll numbers, how Joe Biden is performing in the Keystone State. And it's not good. Very, very not good. We have two really wildly, radically different polls taken at around right. the same time. Franklin and Marshall has Biden with a 28% approval rating. <laughs> that's That's the end of September. And Marist has Biden with a 42% approval rating. This is in a poll, by the way, that had Fetterman up 11, that one with uh, Biden at 42. So Fetterman in this poll is at 51, and Biden is at 42. So if you believe that poll, which I don't, I don't accept that Fetterman has ever been up 11, and I per per particularly don't think that Fetterman is up 11 now, but um, either way, Biden would need him, not the other way around. You don't want the guy at 42 to be somehow ballasting the guy at 51. That 42 is like a contagion. You know, you hang around there enough and 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 his bad numbers start to, you know, basically uh, invade your T cells and 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 destroy your immunity. So what's the only reason why you could want the very unpopular Democratic president to show up with you a week and a half before the election? Because Democrats are falling away. You're losing Democrats. Their enthusiasm is is disappearing. At least they either assume that or they see it. But that's the only explanation. I mean, the question is, who would be better if what you need is Democrats to come out for you, right? Would it be Biden or would it be Obama? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 
three, three and a half weeks. Um, and if 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 the signs, if the portents are unfavorable, one should not expect Democrats to take it lying down. Um, uh, and they will pull, you know, they will they will pull stuff out of out of the hat or try to pull stuff out of the hat. Um, we should say that uh, the ongoing assault against um, uh, the NBC reporter uh, da- uh, Dasha Burns um, continues for the crime of having reported that in her in her face-to-face experience with Fetterman, he could not engage in small talk and could only answer her by reading questions on a teleprompter that she was speaking to him uh, in in his face. We have. Uh, we have this bizarre, I thought, you know, we're supposed to support journalists. And she wasn't even asking particularly tough questions. She just obviously was startled by this uh, experience of interviewing a Fetterman and this um, constant, this effort now to claim that the problem here is that we are, is that uh, anyone who raises questions about his cognitive impairment is indulging in um, uh, hostility toward the disabled is really low. I mean, it's really, really low. To, it's, to I mean, it's worse than that, though. Now Fetterman is is speaking to other, like he spoke to, I think, to Rolling Stone and was like, I, I mean, I just don't know why anyone would be offended that I need this assistive technology. And they're caught, they're, they've created, the, the controversy has shifted from whether this guy is fit for office physically and cognitively to should a reporter, the controversy is that a reporter, you know, commented on that fitness when the public obviously should have that at, at front front of mind yeah but they're cutting off their nose it doesn't by throwing brushback pitches at people who notice the features of their environment doesn't stop mm-hmm. them from noticing it it just stops the conversation before you can explain why i shouldn't care well they they're haven't trying explained to stop why a i shouldn't care they're trying to stop a boulder from rolling down the hill, which is, you know, you have this one report and then there are articles everywhere about whether or not Fetterman is fit for office. And then you have a not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but you have a you have a story that cannot be stopped and they are desperately trying to stop it in its tracks. If I were a deaf person who needed assistive technology in order to hear what was being said and I was and I were being compared to an impaired stroke victim, I would be unbelievably insulted. And that is exactly what they're doing. The, the people who are criticizing this have reframed Fetterman's problems here um, as a kind of deafness. Um, that is not what he's suffering from. This is a processing issue. This is a cognitive issue. I mean, we've seen it when he's spoken on tape. He says no when he means yes. He says, you know, eagles when he means stealers. He says, I understand that this can heal. We all understand that this could be a healing process then that he could be vastly better, right? So he said the other day, I'll get better, but Dr. Oz is still a fraud. I mean, that's a good line. Somebody wrote it and it's a good line and it's a, it's a, it's a good brushback pitch as Noah would say. Doesn't get to the question of whether or not Oz has all his faculties and Fetterman does not have all his faculties intact and that we don't know what schedule on which he will have his faculties intact. He is not leveling with people. He is not being honest about his condition. He has prevaricated about it. His campaign has prevaricated about it. And as Noah has said, 
we have already heard from people, and this is not like Republican oppo, that there is this question of whether or not he could somehow win, resign from office, and have his wife Giselle appointed as the senator in his stead, maybe by the outgoing governor who would take the hit before Josh Shapiro, presumably the incoming governor, since he's up by 15 points or something in the polls, would would have to do it. Now, that may not be real, it may not be true, but it's not like it's something that you can't ask a question about. And they just are trying to do whatever they can with 25 days or something until the election to say, though, that those questions are out of bounds on the grounds of, you know, you can't say anything about anybody, uh, you know, because you're offending the disabled or something like that. Um, it's, one, it's pretty, pretty, one last pretty thing nervous. before we, before we head out, just midterm yeah. news that just blows my mind here. The upshot, Nate. Uh, Cohen over at New York Times, The Upshot, is, has this piece talking about poll response rates. It's very interesting. Uh, and who responds and how do you wait if you don't get the right response based on registered voters in the state? It's an interesting piece. But when he's, he's saying that according to in this year, poll response rate overall uh, in, in, in this one survey that they conducted is a quarter of where it was in 2018. People are not answering the phone. They're not responding to pollsters. We have a really. Do you really... know what that means? Yeah. Do you know what that means? No, that means me. one in a hundred, because right. I believe response rates had fallen. Either it means two in a hundred, or three in a hundred, or one in a hundred, because response rates were already in the single digits by 2018. Meaning, hundred phone calls, and you get three people to respond. One point six percent of all dials. One one point six percent in 2018. Oh. <laughs> that's not that's not that so now you're now you're below one percent <laughs> respond that means for every yeah, so i'm sorry 0.4 percent 0.4 percent of dials this this cycle okay that means to get hold on to get four responses excuse me to get two and uh, to get more more math to get let's hold on to get five <laughs> responses you need to make 200 phone calls I'm trying to think of that. 0.4 times 5 is 20. I may, it may be less, but let's say it's five responses per 200 phone calls. If you need a sample that is, say, 500, which is already a bad sample because you want, you know, classic, the classic sample is 1,200 for some reason. But if you want, imagine that. So you have to make, okay. What did I say? Five responses, 200 phone calls. You have to make 20,000 phone calls to get 500 responses. To get 1,000 responses, you need 50,000 phone calls. There's just, I mean, like, how do you even put out a poll? How do you... I don't even know how you figure out the margin of error. Look, the virtue of polling is that the theory of polling is if you ask enough people, just ask a hundred people something. doesn't even matter who they are. That's the whole point. It doesn't matter. You want to break it down because you want to see if there are ways you can target messages or things like that. But if you ask a hundred people, do you like, you know, do you like Coke or do you like seven up? And 75 people say Coke and 25 people say seven up. Even there, you can kind of figure that those hundred people stand in for the whole of America because it's random. 
there's a pretty significant, I'm, I'm making that up by the way, but you know, I'm just trying to think of something where there's a very binary choice, right? A dark drink versus a light drink, a cola drink versus a non-cola drink. Um, and you could sort of say, probably this reflects a pretty serious consensus view of people, but you can't do it with five people. And in political terms, you can't do it with a hundred people because you're not talking about taste. You're talking about binary choices. You're talking about where they are, how much they know, and are they going to vote? We don't even know if they're going to vote. This is, you don't even know if they're going to vote. Can I, so, I got to throw one other data point at you, which is yeah. since which is that the HHS secretary yesterday, although not many people noted it, just extended the COVID-19 emergency another 90 days. So through the election, which is just something to note that we are, even though the you know pandemic is over, according to the president's administration has just extended the emergency powers for another 90 days. So permanent emergency, that's something every voter should think about. Are, do you want to live in a country that's in a state of permanent emergency? Yeah, we're in such a state of permanent. The public feels that we're in such a state of emergency that 4% of the public has gotten the Omicron booster. 4%. You know how many people got the first shot of the booster like in the first six months? Like 60% of the country. I mean, the, this there's something valuable here because this extends the emergency into 2023 when presumably we'll have a lot more Republicans in Congress and they can and should rescind executive authority. The ex emergency yeah. power that was con con conveyed to the president in this emergency, which he said last month is over mm -hmm. and then proceeded to this would be a, a healthy exercise of power to take some of that back. Yes. Legislatively. Agreed. Listen. Everyone should have a wonderful weekend. Go see some leaves turning. Go, you know, watch some decent football. The, the you know, Yankees are trying to get into the, the divisional playoff series. A lot of fun. Have fun. Don't think about politics. Don't think about genuine. Just have fun. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm out on, on Monday, so uh, our, my colleagues here will have to uh, uh, shoulder the burden without me, and I'll be back on Tuesday, they'll be back on Monday, and for Abe, Christina, Noah, I am John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.